everyone, this is Nick Fletcher, and this is the 31st edition of Interview with the PD Pod. I had the opportunity this month and the real pleasure to interview somebody who I look up to and I think is a tremendous example of leadership and excellence within our society and within the field of pediatric orthopedics in general. Laurel Blakemore is the CEO of Pediatric Specialists of Virginia. She has really excelled now at numerous levels from when she took on the chief position at Children's National to moving to University of Florida in Gainesville, where she did the same thing and really grew a program which had fallen to a point where they really had no providers to eventually moving back up to Virginia and now leading a multi-specialty organization with a focus on pediatric specialty care. And Laurel is a tremendous person. She has great hobbies outside of orthopedics, which I think keep her grounded. As you'll hear, she's an equestrian and pretty accomplished there. She was recently married about six years ago to Steve Andra, who was actually the first neurosurgeon in the ASRS and a previous member of the Obama administration and currently works as chief medical advisor at a company that helps to advise health and human services on advancing private and public insurance markets. So given their combined experience, I think Laurel is really uniquely positioned to speak on leadership and delivery of healthcare. So it was a lot of fun to talk to her about that. And I think on top of all of her work leadership experience, she's also the current vice president of the SRS and will be the incoming president next year. So she's leading a large, complex, and really powerful organization at the highest level. So again, I've really enjoyed this. As always, I'd like to thank all of you for your support in listening to this podcast, and especially again to Carter Clement, who I just wanted to share last month after my podcast with Woody sent me a screenshot of his edits, which had three or 400 different clips cut out. So he is putting in a tremendous amount of work on top of building a busy career. So thank you to you, Carter. And again, enjoy this wide-ranging conversation, and I look to see you all soon. So, Laurel, I'm going to sort of welcome you into the podcast formally. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. This is exciting, and it just so happens that we can do it in person, which is always my favorite time to do it uh, at SRS. So thanks for doing this. Thank you. I'm really excited, too. I've been listening to the podcast and, and admiring how well you've been on with them, so I'm excited to do it. Well, um, I always, as, as you're probably aware, I sort of always like a good Genesis story. So I'd love to know about your childhood because I know I always say it's hard to find a whole lot of about people online because we're all just professionals. But I know a little bit about your hobbies outside of work. And so I'm sort of curious how all this started. What were you like as a kid? Where'd you grow up and that kind of thing? I was born in Philadelphia, and my dad was a surgeon, and I was the youngest of six. He was a general surgeon? He was a general. So back then, he went to Sweden, and actually my sister was born there. I'm the youngest of six. He did a fellowship, basically, with Viking Bjork, the guy that did the Bjork-Shiley valve. Oh, wow. Did some of the first um, heart catheterizations where they basically just, you know, plunged a needle into the pericardium and... And hope the person didn't have arrhythmias. It was, I mean, he did some really wacky, you know, out there stuff before cardiac surgery kind of broke off. So he did a lot of thoracic, but he also, like all surgeons back then, did general surgery. And yeah, he had great experiences about, you know, taking call back then when they just basically 
make sure everybody had a work IV that was working and hope for the best overnight. Yeah. You know what I mean? Call was different. It was just a, he was a really great guy and really driven academically and was an academic surgeon all his life. So we moved from there when I was 10, I guess. And I had already started taking riding lessons once a week, but like my family was not rural. They grew up and you know, everybody else like went to school at private schools. And I went to public schools because by then when we moved, there was no good option like that. So yeah. my whole family sort of had a different, my older siblings had a really different experience in terms of their education and living on the main line, basically in Philadelphia. Yeah. And I grew up in rural Ohio. Like, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Which was great. I mean, yeah. I liked it. So we had a little, my parents got a little farm and they'd always wanted to have a little bit of, you know, like a couple horses. So we had, we started with horses a little bit when I was in high school and yeah, I never got over it or yeah. never got away from it, I guess. So you really started from a young age and did you ride? And again, for the listener, we're talking about equestrian. So did you ride all through college and all through sort of your young adult life as well? I did. The only time I took off was I was at Stanford as a resident Mm -hmm. and I didn't ride for a year. And then when I got back into it as a resident, I was supporting myself, supporting my own habits, so to speak, and had a horse that I got from them that had been a racehorse that had gotten hurt. At that point, they had gotten into like a little bit of breeding. They had Mm -hmm. like a real small breeding operation. So they gave me a horse that had gotten hurt on the track and I started jumping in when I came back to Michigan as a resident. And then I, from then on, I care of myself from that standpoint. Yeah. And I, I was moonlighting at Michigan to pay the board. And, right. um, it was it's, it was interesting, kind of kind of had that, I've had that dual passion all along. I didn't really want to do it professionally, but I wanted to be able to keep doing it. It's a nice sport because you can do it as an older person like yeah, me. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you don't have to quit when you're 30 because your knees are too bad, like some, you know, like soccer and things like yeah. that. Sometimes people have troubles maintaining that participation as older people. So it's a great sport if you want to kind of keep going with it, if it's your passion. So Yeah, uh, that's great. So I'm curious about the family dynamics. Obviously, I didn't know that about your dad. So some children go completely opposite of their parents when they see that. Because obviously, academic, hardworking, driven guy, and you saw that as a positive. And I, I, it's funny because I think of it in in my. Own, I have a daughter who wants to do. What we do. She wants to be a pediatric orthopedic spine surgeon. And sometimes I'm like, what does she see in this? I mean, because I love it, but she sees me, you know, gone a lot and traveling and, and working late. But then also, there's the positive side of the fact that she clearly knows that that I, you know, make an impact in people's lives and whatnot. So, what what did you see, and how did that sort of frame your decision to go into medicine? That's a good question because I think that that. I was operating on two levels. Consciously, I was very anti-academics, I would say. I was, I did not think that my dad was well treated. You know, it was the politics were, <laughs> my my husband has an expression, in academic medicine, the politics are so fierce because the stakes are so small. And, <laughs> and I think great. my dad was not very good at politics in academic medicine. And so he, you know, he had a rough time of it. And I was not going to do academic medicine yeah. at all. And when I did my residency, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do private practice and I'm maybe going to, you know, I want to do peds because I really like it, but I don't want to have to deal with all that part of it. But I, on some other level, I clearly appreciated his experiences in that he was able to teach residents and fellows his whole career. He he loved that. That was really rewarding and looked really rewarding from a, from a childhood bystander perspective. And to be able to keep learning, you know, he was really a lifelong learner like every academic surgeon is. And I think that was really what made me go that direction in the end. And I think I didn't realize how important that was to my perception of being a physician and a surgeon until later. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that all that remained super valuable to him. 
and became valuable to us. My brothers and sisters either went into medicine or completely different direction. So there's 50% of us, of the six of us went into medicine. And my sister is an academic high-risk OB at Hopkins. My brother was in private practice because he really took to heart that academics was, had a downside. And then I thought I was going to follow him, but I ended up going the same direction as my sister. So... It's interesting, though, that you can sort of separate that out of the conscious and subconscious, you know, influence that those things that you saw had. Yeah. So that's interesting. So your route to sort of a practicing orthopedist was really unique. You went to Alabama. I mean, you sort of crisscrossed the country, which I love. So I went to Vanderbilt all the way through, and I loved it. And I'm a, you know, a diehard supporter of a terrible football team because I was there for 13 years. But there's definitely a little bit at times that I feel that I missed out because of that lack of a diverse education across, you know, across the country, across cultures. But you were in the Deep South, you were in the Far West, you were back in the Midwest, and then obviously you ended up working most of your career in the on the East Coast. Anything that you sort of draw from that? Like, what were sort of the, some of the benefits from being able to be in those different environments? I'm really glad I did it. You know, there are downsides, particularly in an academic career. We can talk about what the, I think the drawbacks have been of being willing to pick up a move. But I, from a personal standpoint, I've really enjoyed it and I wasn't afraid to do it. My, so my dad had moved to Alabama by then, which is why and I went to med school in Ireland so I could keep riding horses and keep going to med school. At that point, I was going to do radiology or physical medicine or some flexible lifestyle, yeah. perceived flexible lifestyle career. It just turned out I didn't like any of those specialties nearly as well as I liked surgery. Yeah. So I was like, ah, oh, shoot, that's, I got to do that. So I, I, when I came back, my dad, my family was already in Alabama, so I, that was my in-state school. Yeah. But I'm, I think the opportunity to move around like that really gave me a much better, I, I appreciate having had a more global perspective on life and other people's challenges. And even now, I mean, being part of the organizations that we're part of, you know, our experience is so different than our colleagues in Europe or in other parts of the world that I can really appreciate that having lived in some of those other areas. And even within our country, it's different. So the downsides, I think, are that once you start your career, it's hard to, you know, I miss the follow-up, the follow-through, I think, on on research and things like that, because I'm not there to see my tenure results necessarily in a place because I've chosen to take positions in other places. So there's there's downsides to moving around. And and I I sometimes envy people like you who like have a, they still have friends that they went to school with or college with, but I also really appreciate the perspective it gave me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you, but Michigan did end up being a little bit of a home and obviously that's where you started your career there. So when I was at Vanderbilt, Jeff Martis came and joined faculty. And so it was a really fun time because I think the world of Jeff and his first year he did 500 cases and we spent a ton of time together in the hour. And it was a lot of stories about the people and a lot of Hensinger stories and a, and a lot of things he really felt very close to his experience at Michigan. And so I was I wanted to hear about your experience there and what it was about that place that really was special to you. Oh, I loved Michigan. Yeah, I went there, I guess it started in 92. Fran Farley was there and Bob Hensinger. And Bob Hensinger is just, he's such an interesting guy. He's so smart. And, you know, he was the triple threat back then, right? The president of the academy, president of SRS, president of POSNA. The way his brain worked about research questions and stuff was fascinating. And he, he was not chairman when I came. He was PEDS chief. And then after Larry Matthews stepped down, he became chair. But you now I can remember going in as a resident, so pre-work hour restrictions. 
you know, going in on a Saturday morning and you could smell the cigarette smoke and the coffee oh, no kidding. coming from yeah. his office and you could go in and he'd be sitting there chain smoking and he <laughs> fortunately stopped because it was, he had yeah. some heart issues after that. But, you know, getting to talk to him about what his, you know, what his thoughts were about some research idea or, you know, he had, he just was like a never ending supply of creative ideas. So he was wonderful. And just in general, Michigan had a tradition of being pretty, uh, I would say, advanced in terms of, for example, women in orthopedics. Yeah, there had been other women residents. There were other women residents when I was there. So you, you didn't feel quite so much like a token, yeah. at least just a minority, which was better, yeah. uh, better experience. And I had great colleagues that I worked with there. So it was, I just feel so fortunate that I got to train at Michigan. Yeah. Then went back on faculty for a couple of years. I was program director there for a couple of years. Yeah. Fran stayed on for a long time and now Ying Lee took over. Michelle Caird took over my position when I left on faculty and went to DC. So it's a it's been a great group and a great alumni group for me to be experienced, you know, yeah. to be involved with. That's quite the legacy too. Yeah. Talk about Fran, because I, I I don't know her well, but obviously we're TSRH alumni and my interactions with her have been great. I feel as though she's had a really big presence and uh, over that program from the p- people who've come out and done PEDS. Yeah. Fran I think is one of one of the maybe, you know, under recognized leaders in orthopedics because she is again extremely smart. Her research ideas, her work in congenital scoliosis were really important. And she has been a very staunch supporter of bringing along younger mentees, women and men, and has really tried to make a really positive change. She works really hard. She was a really good surgeon. She's worked really hard for the, now she's, you know, a chief medical officer mm-hmm. for the Shriners, and she's trying to push through some really positive change for that organization and leverage the power of that organization, you know, in terms of its size, which it's always been kind of Uh, fragmented and she's trying to really unify it in ways that are going to be great for the Shriner system so and she's always pushed me to go forward like with things that I would never have really put energy into or understood the importance of when I was younger and she would sort of coach me along in a way that I was really lucky to have and I think she's done that for other people at Michigan and she still loves Michigan but she knows now she lives down in Tampa yeah yeah Uh, (laughs) um, but she continues to be really active I mean we we talk a lot and she's as I say she's been a wonderful mentor and really a wonderful advocate for women in orthopedics but for pediatric orthopedics in general so I I think it's really interesting because looking through your timeline and you mentioned you you talked about change. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But like you jumped to a pretty high level position, what, four or five years into your academic yeah. career. Yeah. That's a big step, right? Yeah. We can talk about that because, you know, I've had the opportunity to look at some jobs sort of a decade in and you still, I think at times feel like, man, I, st- I still haven't even figured out exactly what I'm doing in the OR. And, and Neil Green, who is uh, Bob Hensinger's good friend, said that he finally figured out what he was doing in the OR when he was 63. So I've, I've got a little ways to go. But how did you process that, you know, four or five years into your practice? Like, I'm going to go to this new center that I have no connection to and start a, or, and, and build a program. Yeah, that was a leap of faith for sure. Yeah. I remember talking to Bob Hensinger about it. So I, when I got the call to look at the position in D.C., it was not a very strong program at that point. It had just had the Children's National had had some struggles, mostly because their philanthropic base was poor. I mean, they just didn't have a lot of philanthropic support developed at that time. And so they, you know, they were always sort of struggling to make ends meet. And the program didn't have a lot of people in it, although it had had, had you know, one or two great leaders, but they'd either moved on or just struggled with support. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the chiefs weren't well supported there. And uh, I remember talking to Bob Hensinger and saying, I'm thinking about taking this position at Children's National as chief. And he said, I don't know if I can say this online. I have to think of how to say it. 
cleanly. You, you, you can say. <laughs> he said, uh, why do you want to go there and be the chief? You're just going to get all the shit cases. I said, well, yeah, good point. I don't know about that part. Of Maybe I shouldn't, but I, but I really felt like it was a great time to do that. And it was also a little bit because I wasn't afraid to move around. They, I sort of thought, well, I'm either going to be successful and make it better or I'm going to have to move on. And I was okay with both the consequences. If it failed, I was okay with it, but I had a feeling just having met the chief of surgery who then became CEO, Kurt Newman, and understanding his real strong desire to make it a better program and to make it a what it should be. I mean, if it's at the National yeah, Hospital yeah. in the United States, it should be great. Tony Herring also said I went to, he, he got, I was lucky enough to have him as sort of a step-in mentor because I didn't train at Scottish, right? Yeah. But he said, I called him and said, you know, do you think I should go to D.C.? It's not, it's not a very, you know, it hasn't been a super strong program. And he said, well... I have heard that it is a hellhole. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> On the other hand, if you fail, no one will blame you. But if you're successful, you'll look like a, like an absolute superstar. And I said, "All right, well, that's fair enough. I'm not. I'm, yeah. I can I can handle those risks." Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a, that's. A, I mean, I think it is a unique opportunity at a you know looking at it sort of the other side of the coin at a young point in your career because. Probably not quite as many expectations were are going to be made of somebody who's five years in, as opposed to you know, like for example, if you now came into that, I think the expectations are you're established and whatnot, and so you can go in a little bit like the underdog in a in a tennis match or something, exactly. you know, hit freely and not worry about it. Exactly, you know? the expectations for me to succeed were low. Yeah, I think the resources were all in place, yep. so I was really fortunate. And exactly what you said, people people remember if uh, if you go take over a really good program and it goes downhill, but yep. if you go take it out in a program that's not well known yet or is is not ranked highly or struggling and then make it better then you get a lot of credit whether or not it's all it's obviously not all one person but it was um plus it, there's different kinds of people right there's builders and there's maintainers and i for sure in the first half of my career it was way more interesting to me and i had i was had better skills for building stuff like yeah. that than to sort of keep something going that was already really strong. Yeah. I've learned that both are obviously important, but at the yeah. time it didn't really appeal to me to go to a great big program and be a cog in the wheel. Yeah. I want to get back to sort of the, the, the concept of change and what and some of the things you learned, but I, one of the things that comes up a lot, and, and I've struggled with this personally when, when looking at some other positions, is the loss of continuity of the patients, which obviously is like why we all went into this field. We like taking care of people, and kids are great, and you get this relationship because you saw them at two, and now they're seven, and then they're 13 and whatnot. Early in your career, was that hard? Like when you, do you remember at all that, that transition from Michigan, sort of the, the prospect of losing the patients and the families that you've gotten to be close with? Yes. And I think it got increasingly hard. You know, coming back to D.C. just recently was has been so great because I've gotten I've had a couple patients that I took yeah. care of, you know, 15 years ago that have come back and found me since they heard I was back. And I realized that was if I have a big regret in my career, it's that I lost that continuity with those patients and families. Yeah. Not just for, it made research hard too. It made it hard for me to be a good researcher in a sense because it's really, what, I don't know if you've, you haven't really, once you leave a place, it's hard to go back and get that information yeah. or yeah. data. It's not like you just carry it around on your computer. And yeah. and you, it's a big ask to ask your partners who stay on to get that done for you. It's not like you can go back and say, hey, could you look up my yeah. series of, you know, whatever from 10 years ago? That's just too hard to ask usually. So I, I think that hurt me in a sense, or it was, made, it was a challenge in my career, but I've come to really appreciate how, great it is to see those patients again and yeah. to get that follow-up. I think if I could do something over or could have not suffered that or have fixed that somehow, I wish I had found a way because that was the hardest part about moving. Yeah. 
talk to me a little bit about some of the learning opportunities, the struggles that you had in D.C. I mean, just sort of, you know, points taken that, that you really learned, especially as you've moved on to build other programs. Like, what were some of the times when you failed forward and you figured something out and there, were, and there was a struggle that, uh, that, you, that just sort of come to mind? I think the biggest thing to learn when you're coming into a leadership position is to try to understand the leadership above you better. Their position, their challenges, like I could never figure out when I first started out, like if I went in and said, we need three more faculty right now to make this work. And they, if they said, sort of couldn't deliver it right away when I've, you know, part of the problem with being really young in my career, maybe an advantage was that uh, I just couldn't understand why you couldn't just make that happen. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm sure that we'll, you know, bring in enough money to pay for your salary, but pediatrics isn't quite that way. You don't, we don't, there is a tremendous amount of downstream contribution to the enterprise, but it's not quite that straightforward in pediatrics. It's not like you're just going to be a huge moneymaker right off the bat. And more importantly, what we perceive as delivering a full service line, when you think, oh, we need specialists in all these five super important subspecialty areas, that may not be so clear to leadership. So trying to get into their chair and understand what their challenges are and and really helps you as a chief or as a leader communicate your needs better. And I got, you get better and better, I think, as you go and setting up a real business plan. I mean, to me, that looked really hard when I first started. I, I had no idea yeah. what that was. I had no interest in business, or so I thought. And so understanding what a business plan looks like and what the process is that goes into having to plan how to pay for that, because we still have to keep the lights on. Yes, we're taking care of kids. That's the most important yeah. thing. There's no money, no mission. If you take that to heart earlier on in your career while keeping sight of what's really important, about what we do, that's, I think you'll be, people will be way ahead. And I, I definitely had to learn that just through trial and error. Yeah. I was going to ask where, like, were there resources or, you know, courses or something that you took to sort of fast track the process of being five years into practice and having to lead something like that? I did the leadership fellows program, mm-hmm. the Academy leadership fellows program, right when I was transitioning. And that was helpful you know, I never did like a, got a master's mm-hmm. in business. I think that's also helpful, but it's not essential. And, you know, the truth is when surgeons are like looking at their next half of their career, the second half of their career, or the last 15 years of their career, and they're thinking, oh, I need I need something else to do. That's, you're way too late. Yeah. If you think you want to go into leadership and maybe you don't want to necessarily be clinically 100% or 110% active till the end, you've missed the boat if you're 50 and you're figuring that out. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't know that an MBA in this day and age clearly distinguishes you. Uh, so if you want to do it for the education and to learn, it's sort of like learning another language. It's like learning French. Yep. I mean, to learn the vocabulary and how to speak to people who are in administration, That's then that's really helpful. If you're going to do it as a selling point, you think you're going to get your MBA and somebody's going to hand you a CEO job? Yeah. Probably not. I mean, there, we're like a dime a dozen surgeons with, yeah. you know, with a business back or business education. So the education alone won't get you to the next level. I think the the boots on the ground experience really does. And you can get, you can get through that experience easier if you have some background. So I didn't, I just had to kind of learn it on the job. Yeah. You know, Mike Vitale, I remember uh, who was on the podcast a while back said that he got the MPH and in hindsight, the thing that it gave him was the ability to communicate. He's like, you know, a lot of the statistical tests you just sort of forget. But at the end of the day, when I'm talking to a statistician, I know like the verbiage and it's probably sort of similar from that standpoint. So going back to sort of the process of becoming a leader as you're building a practice, how do you do that? I mean, I remember, well, I mean, I still, it's not like anybody does well with complications or really the prep for a, for a more challenging case, I think, as you get further on your career becomes a little bit more straightforward, you know, what to look for and whatnot. 
But so you're six years in and you're sort of trying to balance building a practice that was pretty, I mean, it is pretty complex. You do complex stuff. I mean, I remember early on somewhere, I actually still have a talk of yours on congenital scoliosis. So like, you know, hemivertebrae excisions and things like that while you're also learning how to build a group. How did that work? Was there anything deliberate about how you went about balancing those two or you just sort of everything that came to you, you just tried to handle as it came? I don't think I was as deliberate as I should have been. Mm -hmm. I tried to be. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't perceive that as both being important. But I started at Children's, and then and I also sort of simultaneously recruited Shannon Kelly, who was Shannon McClure, and Lane Wimberly. And so the three of us started almost simultaneously, and they were just out of fellowship. There was our Laura Tosi, who was our, you know, as, as you know, as an expert in bone health, had already been there practicing. And so it was just the four of us. Yeah. Uh, to start and Paul was busy and we yeah. were busy and we could I remember just we always felt like our nostrils were just barely above the clinical water yeah. and we were if we didn't keep paddling really hard we were going to drown so we probably all got clinically very good and so you know we learned from each other I, I was I freely called my mentors about cases but we just had to take stuff on we didn't send a lot of stuff out either we just kind of did it as we went I mean we were you know we were clinically brave enough I guess and well trained enough which is good news yep. that we could take on almost anything there. I think with a few exceptions. But what I probably didn't do well enough was the you know, the research again the research side of it. I didn't like immediately build the research program. I kind of wish I had in retrospect. And Shannon and Lane also. You know, none of the three of us were like we didn't have that person in the group who yep. was like I'm going to come in and be your halftime clinical halftime bench work guy who's going to build your research arm of it. So it, that didn't really happen until. Close to when I left, we got a big grant of support at Children's National for this Sheikh Zayed Institute, and that brought in some research funding and some. And then Matt had joined us at that point, Matt Atjen, who had a much better ability, I think, to see how to do that. So we didn't develop the research side of it as strongly. And so in, in consequence, I think I maybe could have done a better job building the career side for my junior partners. I tried really hard to make sure that they were getting on committees and doing stuff. Yeah. But in terms of getting on the podium, I didn't really understand the importance of that from a career side until I was a little farther along. And I, if I had to go back and do it again, I would have done a yeah. better job of that. Yeah, that's interesting. But I mean, and in a lot of ways, you're sort of, you have to play the hand you're dealt. And if there's not a lot of research support there and there's not a lot of surgeons and you're just, I mean, you can only do so much. Yeah, um, there was not, there was no research support yeah. when we, when we got there. I mean, we, I, I had to kind of put a stake in the ground to get a research coordinator. Yeah. I think I went and visited Cincinnati when Al Crawford was still chief. And then when I saw like how much research engine they had, yeah. I was like, wait, they've each got, yeah. you know, a nurse or they've each got a research coordinator. I couldn't believe it. I was like, well, no wonder they could, they're doing so great. I mean, yeah. not to take away from the places that we're producing like that, but I was like, gosh, we, we gotta, I gotta get some of that stuff yeah. going here. And yeah. so, so then, then I was like, which I felt stupid. I was like, I should have figured that out five years ago or 10 years ago. But again, we were like so clinically busy and yeah. building the practice clinic and we were hiring a lot of people. And we did, I think, a good job building that from that aspect, but I didn't really get it. It was like, it was like, I was really naive about that. But if you didn't know, right. I mean, Gosh, yeah, I guess so. I feel like I should have. Yeah. Like I said, in hindsight, that's, you know, I was like, golly, I should have figured out that we needed that from day one. Yeah. The one thing I like hadn't, that it was a, that was really a hard line in the sand when I was hired was the fracture room. I was like, we can't, all those people will, I'll burn out every junior partner I have if we don't have time in the morning to do these cases. And I did stick my neck out a lot to yeah. protect that. Did you have one in Michigan that you could use as a, because I think that's the hardest part is like, we sort of have a call room, but still like, 
if it hasn't been there or if, if the person coming didn't have one, then it's harder to make the, the case for it. Yeah, and it's hard because you need a critical mass of people yes. to cover it. Like, we just, I just blocked, we blocked out a little bit of time in the morning, and I said, from 7.30 to 11.30, we have to have the ability to book a case in because nobody likes to be up at 2 in the morning no. doing them. But I was like, we, they won't stay, and if they don't stay, we can't build the program. So that's probably the best thing that I emphasize or that I stuck to my guns about early on when there was a lot of pressure not to and pressure to take it away and to, to you know, to change it. And yeah. it's like, I just knew that we couldn't offer enough to partners unless we could offer that. And I think that's still true. I mean, it's still really a hard fight yeah. in like where I am now in our private hospital. It's hard to get those resources, especially when you're a smaller group and you don't have, you know, 15 people to cover the call right. room or cover the fracture room. But but I would say that's that's something that's really important to the group. Yep. And increasingly, I don't know what your take on it is. I think culturally, increasingly, people are better at thinking about their lifestyle long term. And, and I, I worry a little bit about how we're going to cover all needs going forward. I mean, people still get hurt and sick at night. Yep. But there's definitely a different feeling about taking care of those patients in the middle of the night. At least that's my impression. I'd be well, curious to hear what you think. I agree. And, and I, I'll tell you, one of the things that we have found successful is that anesthesia also doesn't want to come in in the middle of the night. And so when posed with the option of staff, making sure they had adequate staff to staff a fracture room in the morning versus, you know, I think people from our generation, when we put us a similar generation, are like, yeah, I'll do it at two in the morning. And they're like, well, I don't want to do it at two in the morning. And like, okay, then can we have the room in the morning? At, you know, first start at 7 a.m., all of a sudden that becomes a little bit more appealing because yeah. they don't want to be there. Um, and, yeah. and, the, and the staff doesn't want to have to call in people from home to staff the pack, you to staff the, you know, circulators and scrubs and stuff like that. So Yeah, I think in medicine, we're going to have to think about ways that are cost effective to do that because it's sort of the same as, you know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, they used to say, I mean, that's part of why it was hard for women to go into orthopedics is they say, well, you can't be a surgeon if you're not going to be completely full time. Well, that's not exactly yeah. true. You can actually be a 0. 0.8 yep. or 0.6 and still be a really good orthopedic surgeon, but that you have to think about how those how your team is going to make that kind of call coverage work and how your team is going to, you know, distribute your resources because you can't get paid like a 1.0 yeah. if you're working like a 0. 0.6. Yeah. Um, but I, I think we have to figure that out because it's really important that people have a lifestyle they can support long term. We understand the importance of different things than we did 50 years ago. And just because our mentors were tough enough to live like that, they paid the price. And yep. I don't think that's the right thing to do anymore. I just don't always have the solution to how to make it work in a way that we can afford. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's a great point. And I think that there are people in our group, uh, partners of mine, who are maybe a little bit more interested in doing sort of a call-based practice with like a single subspecialty. But the challenge is how to make sure that like their call is tolerable. Right. Because if you're doing, you know, at times in the summer, we'll do 12, 13 call cases a day that you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, you can't do that for any length of time. And if, if you're going to become one of the stalwart call people and that's your practice, you know, the people down at Grady, which is our big county hospital, sort of do that. But they've now got eight people who cover calls, so they've made it more tolerable from a lifestyle standpoint. But, yeah, we're going to have to figure it out as, as trauma becomes, you know, higher mechanism, higher volume in, in our centers and probably yours as well. So. Yeah, Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about the decision to move to Gainesville. I think I've heard a little bit about this before, but obviously, you know, you'd built something. And so as a builder, you get to the point where you're no longer building and you, then you're the maintainer. Was it a desire to build? I know that obviously the love of horses and the ability to go down to a place that you could be closer to that. I mean, uh, I'm sure there were a lot of factors. 
There were. I mean, some of them were made perfect sense still, you know, when mm-hmm. I look back. And I, I, part of it is that builder thing. I mean, I say really fortunate to have the support and the resources and the right people on the bus to build a great program at Children's in D.C. I had heard about Florida for a while. And Florida had no program at that point. Yeah. Like, there was no Nothing. one at yeah. Gainesville doing pediatrics, which, you know, in retrospect, I was like, what was I thinking? But it was also, again, an opportunity to build something kind of from scratch. It did fit in well in a couple ways, like lifestyle-wise, for sure. It was. I'm really grateful that I had that chance to do the horses at the level I did it for eight, nine years, ten years, and be right there. Because I lived 20 minutes from work, and yeah. I lived 20 minutes from most of those competitions. And so I kind of got to fulfill my, yep. my the childhood, dream, childhood yep. dream of being able to do that while building this program that, that is doing great now. I think, again, the, the part I missed and, and sort of regret is that how the way that detoured my career, I think, academically was, uh, I don't know if I really thought through all that. I a little bit was exhausted from trying to make it work in D.C. Mm-hmm. because the commute to where I was living with, to have the farm was, I mean, sometimes it'd take me two and a half hours to get home at night Oh wow! in traffic. And yeah. I was getting up at 4.30 and, and I just, I was just exhausted with trying to make that life work mm-hmm. in metropolitan DC. Yeah. And so, so I, so I don't regret it. I think the timing was good. I think the opportunity to work in a hospital that wasn't as freestanding children's hospital was really important. Yeah. And I think if you're a younger person looking at a job, it's not bad. I mean, there's some advantages to being back in a yep. sort of housed in a department in a way that I hadn't been at children's or even yeah. at Michigan. We were, you know, Pete's was kind of had its all its own resources. And, you know, it was, it's a different emphasis. Hospitals that aren't freestanding children's hospitals, their emphasis on pediatric care is different. I don't know if I understood it until I lived it for a year or two. I was like, oh, yep. <laughs> no. wow, that this feels really different to me. Getting the Shriner support down there was key. Huge, I mean, that was a yeah. huge thing because that allowed us to, you know, have resources that were protected basically yeah. for pediatrics. And Stephanie, I know, as you, as you know, and yeah. Jessica McCreary, state, or, you know, who were building that program have done a great job. And so I'm really, really happy that now they can, you know, we can provide that level of care to that community yeah. and to, to that area of Florida and of the South, really, because it, it was just amazing to me that there was nothing there. But um, it just needed, like, the right spark, I think. So that so it was great. It worked out for me in a personal life yeah. way. I'm also really glad that I took the chance I did now, although, I again, I'm sad that I left those partners. It was a great group. Yeah. But I my passion really realized, like, from a leadership side, to be in a children's hospital system, a children's healthcare system, and just paying attention to that is it's like such a luxury. Yeah. I, lo- I love yeah. that so much. Yeah. And I, I did really miss that at Chance because yeah. it's just harder. It's harder to fight for resources, and they don't, they don't get it. They don't get what you do in a way that yeah. I never had to explain anything like that at, to Children's National Leadership. Yeah. They felt like that too. They got it. But you know, but it's it's good. So like my career, I started off exclusively at Emory. You know, salaried by Emory, operated at a children's hospital. And I mean, same thing. I mean, there were two of us in a department that's now 100 surgeons. And so, like, we were a, uh, the residents loved us. I remember when you came yeah. to Grand Rounds in Atlanta. Yeah. And they, and then, but, but the reality of the matter is that I learned a lot from how a, from a financial standpoint, how a department is run at a high level, because as much as, you know, we sort of in some level rule the, the children's world. In that in that zone, like 
the adult people can do it at a 10x level and seeing how to make efficiencies and how to leverage sort of all the resources and how to interact with an administration because they do look at orthopedics as sort of this uh, this rainmaker division and how to do that successfully, I think, was really useful to see. And, and then in 2018, when we merged with Choa, so now I actually still get a paycheck through Emory, but it's but I'm under the Choa roof and I you know have very little interaction with Emory other than the residency and, tra- and uh, education side of things. But I think that you probably benefited from that as you've moved to your subsequent job to have, to you know to have that leadership. Absolutely, yeah. it, it feels very similar to me the way Shans worked, and and it, it was great. I mean, they have some fabulous pediatric division, but the way they worked very similar to the way Inova Fairfax works. So now I operate at Inova Fairfax and at Children's National, and Inova Fairfax is the same. It's a children's hospital housed within a big adult system, yep. and while there's a separate administration and leadership sort of division for that, it's still within a big system, and you operate in a, it's not a children's operating room. Children's pre-op and post-op areas are in, were only recently clearly separated from the adult. I mean, it's it's just a different feel, but also their resources and their institutional knowledge is tremendous. So if you can leverage that, you know, yeah. like Epic is across that many more providers, all those things, whereas children's systems obviously don't have that luxury. Yeah. But you probably had to build different things than when you were, for example, in Gainesville, where you're, I mean, you were the only show in town, so referrals well, it wasn't a difficult thing. And like how you've got, as, as part of a larger system now, how to manage getting pediatrician referrals from both internally and externally. And I mean, there's a lot of things that that you sort of learn as you go through that process. So the decision to move back, I'm sure, was multifactorial. But what were some of the the big sort of appealing things that that you looked at when you looked at joining another? So PSV, the organization I'm at, it's, is a unique partnership. Our board of directors is made up of members from Inova Fairfax, mm-hmm. which is the big hospital system in Northern Virginia, and Children's National. And I was actually kind of part of orthopedics getting in on that on the ground floor before I left D.C. in 2013. Okay. So I, I believed in that model that we could have an orthopedic group in Northern Virginia that was taking care of the needs of that community, but also tied to Children's National, uh, tied academically, tied in terms of education, uh, and in terms of patient care, so that if you had a patient that you didn't want to take care of in, a, in that system or that the, the resources aren't present in Northern Virginia... They could be cared for at Children's National, where, where we really had that level of quaternary care. Yeah. And I still really believe in that model. And so to go back and be in a position to help lead that organization that I had really so strongly advocated for in the beginning was great. You know, Jeff Hanway yes. was there. And he, I, so I had hired him away from Nova when I was chief at Children's. And then we had him go back, and he accepted a position there as chief of orthopedics back at PSV. So he was kind of the inaugural PSV orthopedic leader. Wow. So the chance to go back and do that again and work with children's now, again, work inside a, inside a children's system, even though it was also in this partnership, was really appealing. And I was really interested in the leadership side of it, not just from a division standpoint, but from a larger sort of healthcare standpoint. So now, you know, so I, there's 21 specialties that were yeah. part of it when I got there. And so that was managing neurologists and geneticists and the people that I didn't really get what their challenges were until then. So it's been a tremendous learning curve for me. Yeah, I think also understanding that the administrative leaders uh, who, you know, when I was two years into practice, I disparaged yeah. them yeah. and thought they were just bean counters. They really care about children's care. I mean, those, my team cares every bit as much as the providers do yeah. about providing great care for 
the children in that community. And that was, it's been really inspirational to work with them and to understand how hard they work yep. for that reason. They're not, they could probably be making more money in a different place, in yep. a different system with adult care, but they're really committed to pediatric care in a way that if you don't know that your administrators are committed, you either have the wrong administrators or you don't know them well enough yeah. because mostly they are very dedicated and very hardworking. And so I've learned a tremendous amount from that team. Yeah, that's a, it's a great point. I think that it's, it's taken me a long time to see that. And I still sometimes don't, you know, I've, I've had, um, some board positions at children's. They would always start off the board meetings with this like inspirational video, right. That they've put together. And I think it, early on in my career, when I saw that, I'm like, oh, we see this every day, you know, on the practicing side, but you realize like they, the, the administrators and, uh, the non-clinical side that that's their anchor. Like those stories of, you know, patient care that we get to see every day, that's what keeps them. And they love it. And they're, they're all in on that. And so I, I agree as you, as you get further along, you realize that everybody is, has a singular mission and sometimes their mission, the, the way to get there doesn't always run in line with what you're, what you're hoping to get or the resources you need, but, but they, but the mission is the same. Yes. And, you know? and having physician leaders is, is really important. So if people are interested, I would advocate and support in any way that I could that to get physician leaders in because we are uniquely positioned to, again, communicate what we're doing to the administrative side and sort of, and, and I think the, the passion that we can engender as physician leaders is different than just being a strictly non, you know, non-medical or non-physician administrative yep. leader. You know, when I leave at sometimes seven, eight o'clock at night, yep. the CFO is the only other person there. I mean, everybody yeah. else is gone, but, sh- you know, they work really hard for the organization because they believe in the mission. Yep. And, and it's, it's, it's like, it's like real, it's like a sort of magic, like, wow, it really is real. The mission and the vision are really, really yep. important. And I think I was completely that just went completely over my head when I first started as in my practice. Yep. You know, I thought we were the we were the people that cared for the patients, and they were the people that reined us in financially. Yeah. It's like not it, we are a team, and we we really are a team, and they're pulling just as hard as we are. Yeah, they want us to succeed. We don't always see it for the the, the direction as as you know being in lockstep with what we want. But yeah, yeah. So I want to go back to sort of the the challenge of clinical practice. So like you've added multiple layers, and we'll talk about another layer uh, in a minute. But what's your practice look like now? And the reason I ask in part is just to to find out, but also I think for the listeners who are sort of thinking about career trajectories, like what level of clinical practice can you still sort of maintain in a CEO position like you have? Because you've got a lot of responsibilities. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's something I'm still understanding. I mean, I'm 50% clinical now, so I have a clinic and a half a week, basically. I have a clinic and a telemedicine clinic. I operate a day a week pretty reliably, and then sometimes two days, like in the summer, I'll add on a day. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I probably migrate into more than 50%, and sometimes in the winter, probably, or when I was first learning the job less, I was more like 40% probably. Yeah. I think, you know, for doing complex spine, yeah. I don't think I could do any less than I'm doing and still do... Complex I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I think you need to get in the OR and see a big enough volume of those patients and put enough casts on and yep. do enough spondies and the things that I think I'm in a good range now, but I wouldn't want to go to 30% or yep. 20%. I think if I did, if you do, I think then you have to make it a hard decision about do you want to continue, can you continue to take care of patients that are that complex or do you need to look at a practice that's more supportive of your other partners who are yep. going to take care of the really hard things and you're going to run smaller clinics. And I can, I think both are good answers. I could see at some point doing that where I, you know, see whatever, you know, see a more general orthopedic clinic 
yep. and push the patients in the right direction to the to the other partners. But for now, for me, I can still maintain a good a practice that I feel like I'm proficient at and I'm providing a service in that area that, that we haven't really done. And then if I have, so I do my complex kids downtown, everything from casting because they don't have a cast table out yeah. there to like a kid that needs traction on the table or needs halo traction preoperatively yeah. or something like that. We'll do, I'll do those downtown. Yeah. But I don't think you should, I mean, maybe it's different for some other subspecialties. For spine, I don't think you should be doing complex spine if, you, if you're only doing, you know, a day or week yeah. clinical or something like that, something less. You just have to decide if it's important enough to you to transition your practice to something that is less demanding of your expertise. Yeah, but I think it's amazing. I mean, your ability to get a little introspective there and, and, and realize that I think is critical because we are all egotistical surgeons at the end of the day, you know, some more than others, but to be able to give up a certain part or, ha- or realize, and, and I mean, I've, we, we do it naturally. Like, you know, I started out as a general pediatric orthopedist and I put on a couple of frames and I'm not that good at frames. And now I've got, you know, Joe Flanagan, who's amazing at frames. And, and so like the realization that there's certain parts of your practice that probably need to let go, we do on a regular basis. But I think then also as you realize that they're non-clinical parts, because non-clinical has always been a little bit taboo, I think for all of us who just want to be you know, surgeons uh, and realize sort of where your sweet spot is, I think is really sure. critical. Well, and you have to, as you're building a group, you have to also make a decision, you know, like, so, so because I was in a small group in Florida, I did everything still and spine. I mean, I did mostly spine, but I was doing extra epiphyseal ACLs, you know, and yeah, I was yeah. doing CP hip and uh, club foot. And, and was I doing as good a job as someone who only does those things, I don't know. I think I was doing a good job. I would love to have had a partner to pass those on to. Now I've kind of got that luxury that I'm in a, you know, back in DC in a bigger group, I can, I don't do club feet. I have, you know, or hip, CP hip. I still like it and yeah. could do it. And if I had to go back to it tomorrow, I could probably regroup pretty quickly, but I'm just doing spine. Yeah. And I think if you want to build up your junior partner's practices, everybody has to buy in that we're going to send all the, you know, mm-hmm. pelvic osteotomies to this person. This is yeah. going to be our hip preservation person. Or this is going to be our complex spine person. I'm not going to do the congenitals anymore, even though I can, because, you know, Matt Ochen's going to build his practice yeah. now or whatever. I think it's important to get buy-in from your whole group at the outset. Where do we want to go with this? Do we want to become subspecialty yep. focused experts, or do we all want to be all-rounders? And I yep. think the days of the all-rounder are probably becoming increasingly yeah, they're yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, a couple of months ago, I had Walter or Quincy and Julie Samora on, and it was interesting because I, I really wanted to have them on because I've gotten a chance to work with Julie through the uh, annual meeting process, and Quincy and I are the same year in practice. But I also call them the first family of pediatric orthopedists because they're, <laughs> as far as I know, the two only two pediatric orthopedists who are, who are married to one another. But you recently were married uh, not long ago to a surgeon, and as I was looking through your dossier, if you will, of all the stuff that you're doing, then I thought, oh, and Lord, she, you know, just recently got married and has a very busy spouse. So, like, how do you balance that? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's been interesting. Again, like, if you'd asked me when I was just starting my practice if I was going to get along well enough with a adult neurosurgeon to get married to one, I would have laughed. <laughs> but um, but but he's exceptional. So yeah, and we've been married six and a half years. Yeah. It's given me a lot of perspective on, well, you know, an, an SRS, SRS is a organization that takes care of the spine across the spectrum, right? So he was the first neurosurgeon yeah. admitted to SRS and his perspective, he was an unbelievably good surgeon and, yeah. and quit when he was 52, I think, yeah. to go into healthcare uh, yep. in the Obama administration. 
So uh, we're both super busy, but I talk to him a lot about clinical questions and sort of hospital leadership questions. He's a great, he's a great resource. He's like my free executive yeah. coach. But I also, it's opened my eyes a lot about not just spine care, but about healthcare in general. Global care. Yeah. 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 So that's, I mean, he's, as I say, he's, and he's happy to talk to people who are interested. I mean, he's a great resource for that stuff. It was part of my decision to come back to D.C. for yeah. sure, because his skill set fits in really well here. He's uh, in D.C. He's a, a works for MITRE, which is a research and development corporation that does basically government advising. So he advises at CMS, and um, it's really a great use of all the skills that he's accumulated over yeah. his career. So that was another advantage for us. He's super happy there. And, you know, Ocala, Florida, Gainesville, Florida was more of a challenge for him, although he was willing to give it a go. So, so that's, again, a, like a compromise. I don't know if I would have um, understood how to make when I was 30, but but now I can, you know, you just take chances like that. And, and I think that most of those decisions or most of those moves have been really good ones, but for reasons that I didn't necessarily anticipate. Yeah. And this has been one that I didn't anticipate how good it was going to be for us to have to have him be in a place that works well for him. Yeah. Well, and it's also probably a move that you couldn't have made. Like if you guys were married when you're 30, first of all, neither of you are going to have, have a leadership role like you have right now and that you can only do a time and perspective and experience to to realize sort of your own zones and, and stay in your lanes and uh, but also have a collaborative marriage. Um, so I find it fascinating that, that you know that you can you guys can make make that work. It's it's great. Well, he's wonderfully flexible, I would say, and supportive. I mean, he's supportive for someone who's got that big a personality. Like he's also really a good support person, which is unusual, I think. So yeah. I think if you you know for us as surgeons, it's hard to find. There are plenty of surgeon surgeon marriages that work, but but I don't know if you would draw them out on paper because you'd take two people who are kind of used to being having big jobs, being in control and being like the most important factor in making decisions. And then you have to split that 50-50. That gets challenging, I, yeah. I'm sure. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear how other younger surgeons, when they're both clinically active, do it. Because then, And then you throw a family into the mix, which yeah. we mercifully, uh, his, he, he has three daughters. So we have three daughters, but they were all out of the house and out of college by the time we married. So I didn't have to deal with that. I, don't, I can't imagine how that adds an increased level of degree of difficulty to life. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's funny, like, the 50-50 the part doesn't work in normal marriages, but I think that, like, with two healthcare providers, it's you're doing a lot of 80-20 or 90-10, and you're just, you know, who gets 90 and who gets 10 uh, depends yeah. on the day of the week. So yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about SRS because we're here, and, and um, I want to be conscious of our time, but it's terrific. I mean, you're obviously part of the presidential line, and it's interesting for those of us who do pediatric spine, because we sort of have two homes um, in PASA and SRS, but you found a really big home here. And I'm curious about, you know, what uh, sort of what has drawn you to the SRS? Um, obviously, it's not like you, you don't like PASA, but it's but what's drawn you to this organization? And then maybe a little bit about what challenges or what, what interesting things have occurred as you've sort of gotten to the pres presidential line here. Yeah, SRS, I mean, I've always loved PASA and SRS. SRS is uh, really interesting to me, partly because it was the first place I got that kind of international exposure, I guess. I mean, I, I have made friends through SRS internationally that I don't know if I ever would have had the opportunity yep. to do and been able, like people like Maharam and, you know, others internationally that have like Marinas, for example, is just such a great leader. Yep. So that experience has been just invaluable to me. SRS is you know, spine care is going through some really unique 
changes, and yeah. and we need to be. Uh, we'd like to be ahead of that curve. And so, uh, as you know, SRS started as as a deformity organization, purely scoliosis. And when people think of scoliosis, they think of AIS. And that's been that's been good and bad. It's been great in that it's allowed the organization to really focus on a set of problems. But the environment is changing. And, you know, as you know, in orthopedic training, our, our trainees don't get to do as, nearly as much spine as they used to. And neurosurgeons are doing comparatively yeah. Yeah. way more. So how we train, and I don't have the answer to this, but how do we train the next generation of people that are going to take care of complex spine, yep. including all kinds of scoliosis and early onset, they need to be really good at some techniques that maybe are harder to get if you're just doing a purely PEDS-focused yep. practice or fellowship. On the other hand, if you're going to take care of children, you need to know how you know, children obviously have unique issues. And so we, I think, as, an, as a group, both um, leaders in PASNA and SRS, need to think about what training is going to look like for for spine care in general, for complex spine, and how pediatrics is going to fit in, and are we still doing the right thing? It's worked really well for us up till now. It may continue to work, but it also may need to evolve into something that is more of a spine-focused training with a piece of it that if you're going to do pediatric care in your practice, pediatric spine care, you, you, you still need training in how to take care of children and understanding the issues that are unique to children. And, yeah. and that is something I would like to work on in SRS and in positive as we go forward is how, how that's going to look in five years or 10 years, because I'm not sure it's going to look the same as it did when you and I trained. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's a, I mean, it's fascinating. And then I think throwing in technology adds a different layer because you know the it's going to it's going to have to change since the repetitions that you and I got understanding and placing pedicle screws by hand and feel and and knowledge of anatomy has really changed a lot and so if you drop the number of reps and then you add in the, a, 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 another layer which is a robot or a, a navigation system that has to be interpreted by the surgeon to make sure that it's you know it's accurate it's correct and you start to see, you know, these are here about cases of injuries and things like that that are happening. And I think that it, it really does behoove us as a specialty to figure out how to how to get the reps in and how to maintain a level of uh, precision and um, experience within, you know, delivery of spine care that that can go away very quickly if, if at least on the orthopedic side, if we if we continue to see these drops in, in number of cases that people are doing during their training. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how how that's I mean two things. One is how would we utilize technology? How do we introduce new technology? Is is a area of this kind of interest and passion of mine. I've been in the like you know we've done a lot of work on that in the pediatric device task force, which was as you know was a joint positive and stress task force, but technology is really changing how we practice. Yep. It's not available globally. So how do we make it, you know, how do we take care of patients globally uh, in a way that's responsible, knowing that the resources in the United States or Canada might be vastly different than the resources in, you know, Addis Ababa or, or the Middle East. Or, I mean, there, we just, we just, <laughs> it's, it's a big unsolved issue, I think. The other thing is, again, like when we, when we go to these meetings, when I go to the SRS and I go to the adult sessions, it's like, wow, some of those techniques are we don't do those yeah, in pediatrics, yeah, you know, the yeah. four rods constructs yeah. and things like that. On the other hand, uh, when I get a resident who's in neurosurgery, they can drop screws. Like, cause I train some neurosurgery residents yeah. now. They can drop screws great and quickly and efficiently, but they have never seen a patient get counseled about casting or bracing. Yeah. And they yeah. don't know how to put on a Metacast and they don't know what person to put in a brace or whether it works or not. And so... So again, the pediatric side of complex spine care is something that we're going to need to solve for 
in a way that works for our patients, kind of working backwards from that goal. And, and I, I don't know what the answers are, but I know that it's something that we're going to need to figure out in the near future, both in North America and globally, how we could deliver the best care and how we can do that in a way that's cost effective. Yeah. Well, we've got like a, just a couple of minutes because we do need to get to the session. But I, I'm curious if you have, well, I know that you have it, but what your sort of, what your primary goals, your platform for your presidency mm-hmm. at SRS is. You know, it's a little bit of a work in progress. I think one of the best things about SRS is that, and it it's, sounds corny, but it really isn't, is that the camaraderie that you develop with the friends you make here is is really one of the most it's one of the most important things in my life, let alone my professional life. And so the beautiful thing is that this presidential line and the presidential line going forward. So I, I'm behind Chris Shaffrey, uh, Serena, who Marina Stekluver, and then me, and then Sukin Shah. Mm-hmm. And we, I think of us more of as a continuum working on issues that are going to be not solved in a year. So, so what Serena's working on is relevant to what Marinus is going to take forward for the next year and what I'll take forward for the next year. So I don't think I have a specific, like, in this year I'm going to get yeah. this thing done. It's more like this is where the presidential line sees what's important going, you know, whether that's fellowship care or how we're going to sustain our mission and how we're going to work with industry to sustain our mission because the, those dynamics are really changing. There's, there's a lot of balls to keep in the air. Yeah. But I think one of the things we really understand is that we need to listen to the membership about what's important, yep. uh, where they want to go with you know education, where they want to go, what do they want us to do for them. So I don't I don't think I can. I guess the the bottom line is I don't have a specific thing yeah. that I'm going to work on for that year from 24 to 25. But I know it's going to be an ongoing discussion with the membership, and that the PL will provide that kind of continuity of leadership that I think is really important and really unique because nobody's going to get that much done in a year by the time they get on their feet. You need to look at five and 10 year benchmarks as opposed to, yeah. And I think we do a good job. SRS does a really good job of bringing leadership in at an earlier level to under, because it's complicated. You can't just parachute into leadership in SRS. Uh, One of the things we're doing this year, as you know, is this lead program that Serena started. And we're going to have 30 people uh, over the course of the next year, starting in January, that are going to be part of this leadership program, which is both to build skills as leaders in general in your own practice and your own institution, but also understanding how leadership works and how you develop leadership positions within SRS. And hopefully that'll better prepare people to get into leadership if that's what they want to do. And if they don't want to do it in SRS, it'll still give them a lot of skills for their own professional career. Yeah, practice. Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, um, this has been amazing. This has been so much fun. Um, I, must, uh, I'm, I'm, I know that we've got some coming up, but this was uh, exactly what I was hoping for. It's so, so fun to do it in person, and so I appreciate the, the time. It's been great. I really appreciate it, too. It's made me think a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. It's it's. We don't, I don't think we reflect on our careers as often as probably we should and, and take sort of stock in where we've succeeded and failed. And so it's been sort of fun to hear people as they, as they think about that. So, yeah. um, But I really appreciate it and uh, enjoy the rest of the meeting. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate awesome. it.